0: how do i know what i think until i see what i say
1: the green notebook carried by military leaders around the world within those pages are sweat tears triumphs and the hard-won lessons of life lessons worth sharing Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself.
0: Hey, it's Joe here. And every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee. They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Sean Coyne. Now, I connected with Sean through Stephen Pressfield, and Sean and Steve have been longtime friends, and Sean was his editor on Gates of Fire, Tides of War, the Afghan Campaign, and the War of Art. Now, Sean spent decades in the publishing business. He's acquired, edited, published, or represented works from Barbara Bush, Dick Butkus, Brett Favre, Colonel David Hackworth, John Krakauer, Bill Murray, Joe Namath, just to name a few. And most recently, he started his own company called StoryGrid, which has published one of my favorite books, The Sand Sea by Michael McClellan. In this interview, Sean discusses topics that cross over from the publishing business into leadership and life. He talks about our need for third-party validation and how too many people spend too many years chasing it when we should be focusing on the validation that's within ourselves. He also talks about giving and receiving feedback, something an editor has to get good at to do their job. And we talk about so much more in this insightful and in-depth discussion. So please welcome to the show, Sean Coyne. Hey guys, thanks for having me here. Hey, thank you
1: so much, Sean. And maybe you can start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit
2: about your career. Sure. Okay. So. Generally I wear a whole bunch of hats but I think I'm known primarily as a writer/editor and in my professional career I started out in you know big New York publishing and I worked at the major book publishers for about I don't know about 10 years And as a young person, I kind of rose through the ranks and reached, you know, senior editor at Doubleday Publishing. I worked at all the major houses, had a really, really wonderful career there. But something inside of me was pushing me to kind of leave that institutional environment, kind of even from the very start, just because it's very structured and it felt kind of strange. It didn't feel organically like a process that everybody was sort of on the same pathway. It seemed very kind of a little bit doggy dog a little bit. Everybody was in it for themselves, and yet they were pretending that they were doing it for higher purposes. So that always kind of struck me as a little strange. And I always thought to myself, someday, someday, I'm going to start my own publishing company and I'll change things, right? So around the year 2000, I started a publishing house called Rugged Land Books. And You know, rugged land books came from the notion from Herodotus, you know, for all those Greek fans out there. And Herodotus has a famous line in the histories that said, I would rather live in a rugged land and rule than to serve under fertile soils and be a slave, something of that nature. So it was very high-minded and very kind of revolutionary. And, you know, as these things happen, and I was in my late 30s at that time, maybe middle 30s. And at that time, I really thought, well, I can really uh, change things here. And it turned out that I was actually kind of recapitulating the same system that I had grown up in. And it turned into a place where I was really concerned about revenue and cash flow to keep the company going and to pay my employees and to keep those books on bestseller lists, that I started to lose the forest from the trees. And you know, it kind of culminated at a place, where I kind of had a personal crisis, and I had to literally shut the thing down and start over again. So uh, that's what I did. And that happened in about 2007. And so from that point, I really was kind of like oblivious, I had no idea what went wrong, how it went wrong, why the things that I thought were going to be so amazing turned out to be very draining, psychically and physically, I was just kind of a mess. And You know, the other thing is that I had I had a family at that point and I had bills to pay. So I had to kind of like put my tail between my legs and I started to work for an agency, a a very famous talent agency in Hollywood called the Endeavor Agency. And the Endeavor Agency, you know, went on to merge with, with the William Morris Agency. And now it's called William Morris Endeavor. And it's one of the biggest out there. But at the time, I had to sort of learn it a little bit of a different skill, and I had to start representing books as opposed to publishing them. So I started as a literary agent, and I started working with independent writers and putting together book proposals and helping those book proposals sell to the major publishers. And you know, my job was, I wasn't supposed to sell anything for less than $200,000 for an advance. So the bar was really high. And, you know, I met the challenge and it went pretty well. And then I got lucky and I got lucky because Endeavor decided to buy out William Morris at the time and they needed volunteers to get fired. (laughs) So uh, I volunteered to be fired. And it was a really, really nice parting because they, in fact, funded the beginning of my own agency called Genre Management from the start. So they gave me enough severance pay that I could start my own agency, and keep it running for about 18 months, plus they paid for my health insurance. So I have nothing bad to say about the people at WME and Ari Emanuel and Patrick Whitesell and all those people were actually really, really cool about it. So from that point, you know, I started to kind of rebuild myself and I reached out to old friends and one of those old friends was Stephen Pressfield. So Steve and I go all the way back to the middle 1990s when I edited his book, Gates of Fire, Tides of War. And then when I was at Rugged Land, he and I worked together on a project that became The War of Art. So Steve at the time, you know, he was looking to change up the way he was moving along. And The War of Art at that time was ready to be sort of brought back into the fold. The deal I had made with a major publisher for paperback rights was up. And so Steve and I decided to start a new company called Black Irish Books. And this is around 2011, I think. And, you know, for the last nine, 10 years, we've been building Black Irish Books organically. Like we don't really worry about revenue streams so much as we do about projects that we really care about. So we have The War of Art there. We've published a whole bunch of other books like Turning Pro and The Artist's Journey and Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit and all kinds of really wonderful stuff that Steve's done. Plus, we've actually done things outside of the usual realm. We did a book called Left of Bang, which we're very, very proud of. It's a strategy book for military professionals, as well as you know, law enforcement professionals, and sort of anticipating things going bad before they actually do, cutting it off at the past before things go bang. And that's been an extraordinarily successful book. Okay, I know this is long. <laughs> I have a long career. And the next thing that he did is part of one of the books that we published at Black Irish was sort of my life's work called The Story Grid. Now, what The Story Grid is, it's a methodology to teach people how to tell the best story that they can using my 30 years of experience helping writers write best-selling fiction and nonfiction. And StoryGrid, over the last five years, has really exploded into its own thing. And that thing includes courses, and we have our own publishing house now called StoryGrid Publishing, where we publish fiction and craft books, and we will eventually start you know, branching into other nonfiction. But that's really my job. 99% of my job right now is focusing on just honing the StoryGrid methodology and technologies that enable people to craft the best fiction. And the most recent title that we published was called The Sand Sea by a guy named Michael McClellan. We've just about sold almost 10,000 copies in only six months. It's an original epic fantasy novel that's part of a three-part series. We're really excited about the next couple coming out. And that's pretty much it. That's my 30-year career in, I don't know, was that, 10 minutes? Maybe too long. No, I don't even think it was 10 minutes. So Not too long at all.
0: That was great, Sean. And uh, my son told this to Mike, and I'll just pass it on to you as well. We just request you go ahead and get the second book of the Sand Sea out uh, <laughs> as, as quick as you can. The first one was amazing. I'd like to dive a little bit into your career because you went from a job where you know you had stability, you had security, to branching out on your own when you started Rugged Land. So could you talk a little bit about the decision to leave Doubleday and and just kind of what you were going through? And and I ask that because a lot of folks in the military are constantly wrestling with the decision to leave the military and to go strike out on their own. So I'm just curious about, you know, some of the bits and pieces of that as you were working through that.
2: You know, I got to say, I think (laughs) I was born with kind of like a chip on my shoulder, (laughs) and I don't know how I got there. I know how it developed over the years, but when I was at Doubleday, I was sort of, it felt like I was on reconnaissance, right? I felt like I was there, but deep down, I knew there was somehow some way that I was going to be able to start my own thing. And so my decision to leave was really built into my kind of my DNA from the beginning of my career because I found the accolades and the validation of being kind of a big deal in a small pond to be not so satisfying. So what I mean by that is that the way publishing works just the way it works in any other kind of field is that you know you go in there and you're naive and you're you're bright and bushy-tailed and all you want to do is get to the top of the pyramid. And you think once you start, you know, climbing up that ladder, that you'll start to feel better and better about yourself and that your accomplishments will start to speak for themselves and that people will form a really strong, high opinion of you. And that's kind of your early motivation when you're younger. You think, you know, once I reach that level of president or publisher or editor in chief or colonel or whatever you want to, you know, whatever analogy you want to make for the military then I will feel like I've accomplished something. But what happened for me was I discovered that underneath that sort of climb up the ladder, if I didn't have like a global target of process that all of the best sellers, and I had a lot of best sellers, and what I found is that it was momentarily satisfying and I would get a pat on the back at work, and then I would go home and it, you know, the more I had, the less it would last. And so at that point, I kind of said to myself, well, there's got to be a different way. And you know, I think my first attempt was too much focused on still looking for that third party validation. And when I say third party validation, the way I talk of it is your first party is kind of like your family, right? So, it's all those close relationships. They're your best friends, you know, all of those very close people. I call that your first party relationship. And then you've got another level above that. And that level is sort of second party. And the second party is all of your kind of tribal affiliations, right? So, these are usually limited to like 150 people, like the Dunbar number, but you have multiples of them. Like, I love storytelling. So, I've got my storytelling tribe and then. I also love sports and I've got different tribes and I belong to different tribes and that's my second party. These are sort of friendly relationships, they're acquaintances, they're not like people that I would call if I needed to be picked up at four o'clock in the morning because my car broke down, that would be first party. Now there's another level above second party, which I call third party. And what third party are all those incredibly large numbers of people that you will never know, you will never meet. But for some reason, our DNA wishes to have their validation. So it's kind of like the whole notion of having more than 150 friends is, I mean, let's be truthful here. Like we can count our friends on one hand, really. And then we've got our sisterhood and our brotherhood of our tribe. And we're all dedicated to some kind of central ethos that we work towards together. And so when things get bad, we all go, well, why are we here again? And it's like, well, we're here for this one virtue that we're trying to expand in the universe. And then the third party is like all this stuff we can't manage. But for some reason, we all get locked into this third party validation. How many friends do I have? How many people listen to my podcast? How many people have read my blog posts? That kind of stuff. And that's the stuff that can really suck your soul out. So what I discovered when I started Rugged Land is that I I was still looking for third party validation. So then I hit that bottom when it didn't work out, which was really crucial to my development because I had to hit bottom after I'd had so much third party validation and it still wasn't working for me. I had to hit the bottom. And what happens at the bottom is that things emerge, things that are super important, And that's what happened to me over that period of sort of tail between my legs was that I started to understand, oh, what I really care about is the construction of stories more than the result of that construction. So I started to understand if I can put my attention more on the process of storytelling and less on the result of storytelling, then that would be good for me. Because then I can just get rid of that whole third-party validation thing because it won't be that important. If I can get into the nuts and the bolts of the story structure and help people tell better stories, that would be more meaningful for me. And if I can start a community where story is at the top of the pyramid and developing stories so that they transform people's lives, well, that would really be something. And if I can you know, build in some kind of engine that would build in trickles of revenue to keep it going, all the better. Now, the good news is I already understood how to build revenue because I had to with Rugged Land. But now I can really use those old skills to serve a higher purpose, which is to help tell better stories so that people don't get sidelined by half stories. right? So The thing about stories is that there's two sides to every story. It's a dynamical system that has both inherent goodness and evil within them. And so there's these two dynamic features that are constantly playing against each other in a story. And guess what? You need both to find a meaningful life. So I'm not really sure if I answered your question other than... These dips in our lives, these things that we kind of are terrified happening to us, actually, they point us towards more meaningful decisions in our lives. It's like Steve's concept of resistance, is that the resistance that we face in our lives is actually signal. And the signal is, you need to be placing your tension here instead of where it was before. So I count my lucky stars that I learn how to play the game such that I can generate enough resulting revenue from the exploitation of story sales. And I I have nothing against that, of course. But that's not the be-all and end-all of my life anymore. It's more about how can I make Mike McClellan a better writer? How can we work together to create new things that nobody's ever read before, that are so exciting that they change people's, you know, perspectives of reality.
0: I really love that you talked about third-party validation. As a military leader, early on in my career, I, I remember I was chasing the outcome, the evaluation report at the end of a tour, instead of focusing on the process. And in the military as well, as soon as it came to that point where. I no longer worried about the outcome. I just focused on the thing that I cared about, which was, you know, focusing on developing leaders. I was much happier than I was prior to that. And so I, I love that you talk about the different parties of validation because I think we all struggle with it. And I even got uncomfortable when you started talking about validation through blog posts and, <laughs> and podcasts. I thought, man, he heard Jacob and I's conversation before he logged on. And now it's a
2: yeah, well, I mean, the important thing to me, and it's the same thing in storytelling, is you put the telescope and the microscope on that phenomena, right? So if you can look at it, it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person because you want validation from third parties. We all do. I want to walk down the street and have people go, oh, my God, there goes that guy who's so awesome, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just... Understanding that dedicating your life to getting that is not going to bring you much joy or meaning. One thing that I always say to the writers and a lot of the structure of StoryGrid is about we as a being system, like as a species, Homo sapiens as a system, we've got three kind of perennial problems. And these are problems that just are constantly in front of us. The first one is, how are we going to survive this thing? Like, How can we you know, just survive? That's number one. Number two is, how are we going to thrive? How are we going to get to the place in our own mind and in the community such that we're all working toward something that's better than now? That's thriving. And the last one is, how do I derive? How do I derive the meaning of why the hell I'm here in the first place? So those are like what I call the three perennial existential problems. And the thing is, is that our life is a journey. It's a course. It's a discipline, right? It's a road. That's what a discipline is. It's a following. So our lives are trying to contend with these three perennial problems. Now, the first one is all about attaining wants. I want some food because I'm starving. So you got to go out. You can't do anything until you feed yourself, right? And then the second one is really about, well, am I really getting what I need? Am I climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Am I finding relationships that are beyond having a wife or having a son, but being with your wife or being with your son or daughter? That's thriving, right? So we can all get married. We can all have a spouse. But if you can't be in a relationship with that other human being where you can actually give and take and challenge each other and grow together, then it's not fulfilling an inherent need within you. And lastly, you know, we all try and get to a place where Maslow called it actualization. And what being actualized, all it means is through stumbling through the darkness of your life, you come to this pit. And we all face these pits all the time. And this pit, it takes us to the end. And we say, what the hell is, what am I doing here? What, what is this all about? And what it helps us do is it directs us toward a calling, some sort of calling, some sort of domain, some sort of pursuit of virtue. And for me, once I discovered my pursuit of virtue is all about truthful storytelling, then I can say, oh, okay, then my contribution to this big thing that we call whatever it is we're doing here on this planet is to pursue that thing of truthfulness in storytelling. And as long as I stay in that narrow track, because I love it, I think about it morning, noon, and night, right? So that's my actualization. That's the deriving part. That derives meaning for me. And when in doubt, and I start going, nobody's read my latest blog post and nobody cares about my podcast and nobody's buying enough of my books, I can cool my jets for a second and I can go, oh, wait, I have a name for that thing. Oh, that's called third-party validation. What do I know about third-party validation? If that is the focus of my attention, I'm not going to be very happy. So what should be the focus of, oh, right, the focus of my attention should be in Getting my ass in a chair and thinking about how to better the technology of StoryGrid stuff, and so that's where I go whenever I start worrying about that stuff. And it's perfectly natural to worry about it. And if you didn't, you know, you just wouldn't be a human being. So I wouldn't like self-flagellate about worrying about your podcast because you know you need to worry about that too. But there's a hierarchy of things that you should pay attention to. And the trick with actualizing is figuring out that hierarchy so that whenever you get confused and you get thrown off the disciplinary path, then you can go, wait, 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 where's that shining light again? Oh, that shining light is to cultivate the virtue of extension of truth into the universe through my work, helping people tell better stories. Oh, cool. Okay, so now I know what I need to do at six o'clock in the morning tomorrow. Instead of, you know, search engine optimization, I should be working on clarifying inciting incidents or something like that.
1: Yeah, Sean, I mean, we could have an entire episode about these concepts that you're talking about. And I think when you talk about the validation, ultimately, it seems like it comes down to self-validation. And it's weird because the way it works when you have self-validation is that the first tier, second tier, third tier, those validations are all more important to you as you spoke about. I feel like if you don't have your own self-validation, then it kind of works in reverse. And that's when you search for those third-party validations and the second-party validations, the people who ultimately don't care about you. And for some reason, you feel that you need to be validated by them as well. But you talk about resistance, which is a really great topic as well. And I was wondering if you could be a bit more specific and talk about what resistance is to you, because it seems like It's easy to resist the things that are good in your life, like exercise, for example. I want to go out and exercise, but my body somehow feels resistant to that. But if I want to sit down and eat a bag of chips, you know, my body definitely doesn't (laughs) feel resistant to that. Where does that come from and how do you overcome that resistance?
2: I love that question. And it's certainly something that I've contemplated a lot working with Steve over the years. And your first comment, I think, was really, really astute and correct, right? I'm just going to go back to the ancient Greeks, because that's kind of where a lot of my philosophical thinking resides. And so Socrates, uh, you know, he was a really smart guy. He was also an incredible warrior. I mean, the guy was on the front line in the Peloponnesian War, and he was an ass-kicking warrior to begin with. So let's just get out that fact. But what Socrates always talked about was he always said the unexamined life is not worth living. And what did he mean by that? I always, I've been thinking about that for 30 years. Well, I think what he means is that we have these two desires. You know, one desire is to feel good about ourselves, right? We want an integrated internal life such that we're not tormented by our demons and we can walk around with a semi-smile on our face and be pleasant to other human beings. That's number one. We want to enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with that. And the second thing that we want is to belong to something that's bigger than ourselves. So we want to integrate into a larger community and to serve that community in a way that gives us some kind of validation. So both of those things are really super important. But what Socrates was saying is that, you know what, you kind of have to constantly be doing both and in order to do both you've got to come to terms with what's going on inside your psyche how does your mind work what's going on in there and so the original idea this is going to come to resistance all right so the original idea now plato was socrates sort of mentee so socrates was the mentor to plato and plato was the mentor to aristotle and Aristotle was the mentor to Alexander the Great. So you've got this amazing chain of knowledge delivery from Socrates all the way down to Alexander the Great. But what Plato came up with, which is really the basis of all psychological theory now, is this sort of trinity of forces within your mind. And what he called the monster, the person, and the lion. So The monster is kind of that guy who wants to sit on the couch and just feel good right now. Give it to me now. Give me the potato chips now. And there's nothing wrong with that guy because that guy helps us survive, right? If you're hungry, that guy's going to save your ass. But he's kind of a monster because all he gives a shit about is his own self. He's got to get what he wants and he wants it now. All right, so that's sort of like the monster within the psyche. And the monster's not bad, right? I really want to stress that. We're not trying to get rid of any one of these three psychic elements. What we need to do is to integrate them together so that they're coherent, so that there's a coherence inside our minds that can help us move forward and navigate and get the things that we want so that we can you know, contend with these three perennial existential problems. All right, so the second part of your mind Is the person. Now, the person is the long term thinker. The person is the rational thinker in your mind that says, whoa, 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 don't eat the potato chips. You know what you ought to do? Go out for a brisk walk instead. And that will clear your mind and you won't need the potato chips. And that one kind of fights with the monster a little bit. And the monster presents resistance and the person has to sort of talk the monster off of his, whatever his desire is. Now, the last one, The lion. Now, the lion, all the lion wants to do is to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. So the lion has really got his eyes out on making sure that we can integrate into groups well. So it tells us the right thing to say, how to read the room, not to, you know, cause waves to, you know, integrate into a desirous sort of tribal Second party relationships so that we can work within a group and a community because nobody can win a war by themselves. Nobody wins by themselves. There's always, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell said this in one of his books we all get a lot of help. So the lion is about integrating into those systems. But now, if we let the lion rule, what happens? We become a chump. We just do whatever to get along and then we start denying our intellectual capabilities and in our internal psychic person and we're constantly flagellating our monster to get his ass in shape right so there are stages in our lives when i think these three psychic forms are starting to to come to the fore and then eventually as we mature we need to integrate them and we need to use them and all of their skill sets in context so when something presents itself the monster might be the right one to sort of bring out the deal with that problem. Like if your buddy just had his birthday and he's having a birthday party and they're going to have cake and beer and potato chips, get your ass over there and enjoy it, right? So these three things, what happens is when they're not in balance, things start to get very difficult for us to do. That's resistance. Now, what Steve says about resistance is that it's a beautiful signal. And the signal is saying because you're feeling such resistance to this particular, you know, thing that you have to do, you need to fly into the face of that resistance and move forward anyway. It's kind of like the Jocko Wilnick kind of approach, right? It's like get in there, you know, get in the ring. And that is a really good piece of advice because. Resistance for me is similar to what Carl Jung was talking about and sort of like his idea of these unexpected events that drop into our lives that cause us to kind of lose our ability to deal. And those are the moments, those resistance moments, then we, well, we don't want to cancel that appointment. We don't want to hurt that person's feelings. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. You need to take that person in your psyche and start analyzing why. Why exactly am I so afraid to go to that party? Why am I so afraid to start that podcast? Because, you know, the podcast, starting a podcast and having nobody listen to it isn't going to kill me. So it doesn't make sense to be so damn afraid of it unless there's some stuff I got to dig up and metabolize about why that might make me feel uncomfortable. So, The concept of resistance, the way I use it, is that what happens in a story is that people come against this resistance, and the entire story is about how they metabolize that resistance. I just finished going through The Hobbit for StoryGrid. And The Hobbit's basically the story of some slobby guy who wants to sit on the couch and doesn't want to leave his house. And this mentor shows up, knocks on the door, and goes, get off your ass and go on this adventure. And not until the people start saying, you know what, you're kind of like shaming your family by not going on the adventure. What kind of hobbit are you? Does the guy actually decide to go on the adventure? And so he's resistant to dealing with his heroic self. And the whole story is about him dealing with that resistance, beating it down and getting it under control because it's always full of shit. Resistance is always lying. Whatever you think resistance is telling you is bullshit. So if resistance says don't do a podcast because nobody will listen, well, all you have to do is reverse that. That's bullshit. The truth is you probably are afraid what if people do listen? What are you gonna say then, right? So there are these things that we can really suss out when we really identify why we're so resistant to doing them. And part of that is all the process of integrating our psyche in that three-part Platonic idea, and you know, Freud called it the ego, the superego, and the id. It's the same situation. Plato doesn't really get much credit for creating psychology, but he did. And through the centuries since That general system is still considered very valuable as a model to think about what's going on inside your mind. Why are you torn between your monster, your person, and your lion? If you know that you have that identity within you, then you can sort of break it apart, you know, and you can figure out, oh, well, potato chips taste good and they make me feel good momentarily, but they're going to make me fat and then I'm not going to be able to finish that 5K in two weeks. So you know what? Why don't I have a bag of potato chips after I finish the 5K? It's that simple. So that's generally the way I consider resistance as a really, really important force to understand as a person so that we can overcome it.
0: I love what you just said about resistance, Sean. And, you know, it's something that I know I've wrestled with, you know, just going away from the military career, but just working through the blog and the podcast. There's a constant fear, a constant doubt, self-doubt that's just sitting in the back of my mind. And so every time I sit down to write or every time Jacob and I sit down to record one of these episodes, it's an act of pushing past that. And it's just been so helpful, especially once I read War of Art, just putting a name on it and Mm -hmm. being able to move past it once I did that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the War of Art has sold over a million copies in its incarnations, and it's not because Steve and I have been beating you know the bushes trying to get people to pay attention to it. it's because it's just organically true, right? So when people read the book, they're like, "Oh my gosh, that's exactly what it is. Oh, so I'm not alone, I'm not the only lazy bastard on the planet. Oh, so everybody goes through this, and so what does that do? That allows us to say oh, I'm not defective. I'm actually, wow, this is part of life experience itself. So recognizing just all the challenges everyone goes through is helpful when we're trying to form relationships with other people. It's thinking and having the capability of being empathetic to another point of view is part of the beauty of resistance, right? So Once we know that everybody goes through it, then it becomes more of a project of overcoming it day to day, like Steve, to this day, you know, and I I agree with him. Every single day I wake up, there's resistance. It's sitting there and it's telling me, oh, get, you know, 10, 15 more minutes of sleep. Don't worry about it. Give yourself a break right? And sometimes you need to rest if you're sick, but you know what? Bullshit. Get up and do your thing. And the worst that's going to happen is, wow, you might not get into the flow state today, but you're going to be battling resistance over and over again. And once you get used to the battle, it becomes an everyday habit. And so that's part of what resistance is too, is that you can name things. Like people always ask me, well, I've got this phenomenon that happens to me when I have to go home for Thanksgiving, you know, to see my family. Is that resistance? And I'm like, if you've raised the question, is that resistance? It's resistance. So then you can understand, oh, well, I can beat resistance if I really apply myself and I integrate my psyche so that I know what's the most important thing to me and how can I support the expansion of that most important thing into the greater world. So that's the beauty of the war of art I think is that it really just pinpointed a phenomena that everybody experiences and it demystifies it. So it takes it away from oh Sean's defective he's never going to make anything out of himself because he can't get off the couch eating potato chips. And it takes that self-flagellation idea and it moves to Oh, everybody faces this crap. I guess I'm facing it. I'm a human being. Wow. Other people like Martin Luther King were able to get over resistance. Maybe I should think about what would Martin Luther King do if he had to go give a speech on a Saturday and he didn't want to do it. I think he'd show up, don't you? (laughs) And then you go, well, maybe I can use that as a means to get me off the couch. The great thing about life is there are all these paragons and all these symbolic figures who show us the way. All those people that we revere and we say, wow, they were amazing. They were people too. They faced resistance. So their lives became super meaningful through time and eternity because they had the courage to just fight it every single day you know what, today's the day that I give a speech. Today's the day I wake up and write my speech. And they just clock it in. And um, it's a very simple concept. It's very difficult to do.
1: It's a simple concept, right, but difficult to do. And in some sense, like you said, it's not simple to implement into your everyday life. It does take some discipline and some work for sure. But when you were talking about your kind of story earlier about leaving Double Day. It reminded me of another book, and this is a first because it's usually Joe that's bringing up the books, but it reminded me of a book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And it talks a lot about that, where this person was making a lot of money, but they weren't being fulfilled. And they essentially left that life of fame to become a monk, and it made all the difference in the world to them. And that kind of leads me into the question of being present, because you talked about that as well earlier. How do you make sure that you're present? I know like our kids, we talked about, all they want is, is to make sure that we see them and we spend time mm-hmm. with them. And there's technology and phones and there's so many distractions. What are some of the things that you do to make sure that you're present with your family, your friends, or even with yourself, whatever the moment is?
2: Unlike everybody else, I struggle with that and the reason why is that we are planners as a species right so our psychology and that constant internal you know intrapsychic battle of keeping those three and we all know there's more than three players in our mind <laughs> jung came up with the concept of archetypes to really blow that concept out of the water but generally those three are a really great place to start so there's been this, they call it the hard problem of science, which is sort of integrating the the mind and the body, right? Like what's the difference between mind and body? And it goes all the way back to Descartes. And it's all about the coming emergence of artificially intelligent things. And it really comes down to is the way I look at being present is to focus on There's these two concepts, right? There's the top down and there's the bottom up. And the top down is kind of like your brain. It's saying, I will work out every single day at four o'clock in the morning, rain or shine, I'll be doing it. We need that. We need that top down disciplinary kind of force. However, the bottom up is something else, right? The bottom up is paying attention to the moment. So we don't make our life a series of tasks and every day a series of ass-kicking you know, features of what we're gonna do today and it's four o'clock, therefore I do this and it's 4.30, therefore I do this. Now that stuff's super important. I'm not saying it's not, but what happens at four o'clock in the morning if you wake up and your kid's crying in his bed, right? So at that point, if you are so locked into your own shit, excuse the expression, and you are just going to go work out no matter what, then what's going to happen? Well, you're not going to be present for someone who needs you. And so what you need to do is to have a bottom-up system too. And the bottom-up system only means paying attention To what's going on right now. So literally, like keeping your ears open. Oh, I sense somebody's crying. I wonder why. I wonder where that crying is coming from. Well, Sean, you got to go work out. Well, you know, hold on a minute. Let me investigate the crying. It might be your dog. Maybe your dog's not feeling well. Well, take care for that moment. That's what you need to do. And you know what? The top-down stuff, I love it. It's great. But there's a time and a place. There's a time and a season for all things. And so the moments are about attuning to what's necessary in that moment. So for example, Jacob, we're fathers. So there are times when we sense now's the time to sort of bring down the anvil on this young person and let him or her know who his boss, right? And just say, we don't do that kind of thing in this family. And you're going to go to your room and you're going to think about it. And I don't want to hear any crying about it. That's sort of like, you know, your powerful top-down person. And then there are other times that you can sense, you know what? Now's not the time to do that. Now's the time to put my arm around that kid and say, you know what? It's hard, man. I know exactly what you're going through. And I, I don't know specifically what you're going through now. But what I can say is you're not crazy for crying, right? especially today. Holy crap. How did kids deal with it? Like, Nothing makes sense anymore. I can barely hang on. So that's being present. It's recognizing the truth of the moment and having the faith and the ability to focus and pay attention into the context of every moment. And that will enable you to tell you when it's right to apply you know, your luminary agency and your shadow agency, you know, well, are you going to try and create something? Or are you going to try and destroy something that's not working very well? It's the ability to create and destroy. We all have that within us and we need both because if something isn't working and it's tyrannical and bad, we got to break that shit down. But we also have to rebuild, right? So we need to know, there's a great quote from, um, One of the architects of game theory, a guy named Thomas Schelling, he was a military advisor in the 1960s, and he was the one who sort of came up with that strange idea of mutually assured destruction, which is mad. You know, it's like the Soviet Union and the United States, we have to constantly communicate and let each other know if anybody pushes the button, that's it for everyone. So it was that balance of mutually assured destruction that kept everybody from pressing the button. Well, Schelling was brought into one of those meetings during the Vietnam conflict, and they were going through all these tactics and this grand strategy, and Schelling said something like, well, how do we know when we won? And that's really important, because you need to have a vision to figure out how do we know what the ultimate goal state is here? And so the ultimate goal state is to be able to read each moment. And to be able to apply the right agency at the right time. And the way you do that is simply by listening, seeing, smelling, taking in the sensory, all the stuff that the guys who wrote Left to Bang are talking about. It's paying attention to your somatic body and the signals that it's giving you and processing that information as if it's gold, because it is gold.
0: Sean, those are some amazing insights. And I... Growing up in the South, you go to church on Sunday, and you talk about how you know you were sweating all during church because you felt like the preacher was talking to you. And like this entire <laughs> podcast so far, I'm like, man, like shots hit me in the feels today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. And so, like one of the things that I don't want to walk away from this podcast without asking you. Is it one of the biggest, I'd say, you know, pieces of resistance for me, and it's been that way throughout my career, is just feedback, like worried about feedback and even giving feedback to people, especially when the feedback's not good. And so I have to ask you as an editor, what have you learned about giving feedback over the years and receiving it? That's a very difficult
2: thing to figure out, but here's kind of where I've come to is that There's a place within every person where we have to try and get to. And it's a place where we don't have an agenda, right? So when I'm talking to a writer about their story, the place that I try to approach them is a mutual, like a, it's like a DMZ. So it's an emotional DMZ, right? So I'm coming over into this DMZ and they're coming over. And the the agreement that we have is, Hey, I'm just going to throw some things out there that I find you might want to think about. And you respond. And what we'll do is we'll go back and forth and have a dialogue. So the goal state of this story is to reach a catharsis. And I don't think we're there yet. What do you think? Right? So it's dialogical as opposed to monological. So I have a tendency to, as you guys have probably experienced in this podcast right now, I have a tendency to go through monological kind of reasoning. And so I can talk and talk and talk, and I've got beginning, middle, and end to the things that I say. But the purpose of my monologues is really to induce that thing that you were talking about, Joe, where you said, God, it feels like Sean's talking directly to me. So that made me feel, oh, good. I'm doing a good job in this podcast. Because that's what sort of my monologues are trying to do to the writer and to people I give feedback to, is to speak in global abstract terms that are not, you know, you've got a problem because you're doing this wrong and you've got to fit, right? So if I can move away from the It's only you and once you can fix, and if you're never gonna be as good as I am, and blah, 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 blah. If I can move away from that approach and make it more like, let's talk about the structure of the kind of story that you're working on. Right. This is the kind of structure that the best masterworks. Hey, did you ever read X? Did you ever read The Hobbit? Let's talk about The Hobbit for a minute. Okay, so there's this moment in the Hobbit, right? And then you nerd out in the details. On a third- party discussion, and then they start to, in their own minds, click, 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 they start to integrate you know what I'm trying to get across to them. They need to have a dialogue with themselves. Well why am I writing this thing anyway? Why do I desire to have Sean, you know tell me all the answers to my problems instead of me kind of working them out? So that's the approach. And it goes all the way back again to Socrates and Plato. And they believe that the only way emergent truth comes out of the world is through this process called dialogos. And dialogos is about two people who have completely different opinions about anything, who can come in and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about this global idea here. What do you think? And they go, Oh, that's interesting. I always looked at it this way. And then the other person goes, Oh, wow. I didn't see it that way. But it's not about winning an argument, right? It's not an argument. It's not a debate. It's not, I can beat that writer down to do what I want them to do. And then I'll have a bestseller. It's how can we together form some kind of back and forth from which neither one of us is pushing an agenda but from that conversation will emerge novel ideas oh my god i never thought of using a golem like character in my fantasy novel that's a great idea how can my golem be different than tolkien's golem right that's an emergent idea that can come out of relationships when you're discussing mutual love right so say i'm in the military i'm just talking off the top of my head and say I've got to give a report to somebody who's part of my squad and we meet and I go, look, we've got to talk about this stuff. By the way, why'd you join the service here? Oh, I don't know. I was just kind of looking. Yeah, I kind of did too. Right. And then you can form a bond because you're serving the same kind of global gestalt. And it's about talking about what you have in common and the thing that you care about most together. And then you can say, have you ever thought about the way X, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, do you ever read that guy? That guy had to face this weird thing where he had to get these Bedouin tribes together and to fight the blah. He figured out that if he became more Arab and less British, that he would have more success. Did you ever think like maybe if you were less this, you could be more of that in that terrain? And it's bringing in all of these ideas and having a dialogue about it. That will emerge new things. And then it doesn't become a top down, you are not performing, so you know, that kind of deal. I was just watching this show. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's called Ted Lasso. And it's sort of that approach. Ted Lasso is this guy, this kind of like bumpkin from Kansas who gets hired to be a soccer coach over in England. And he's got a, like, he doesn't even know the game of soccer, but he has to go over there and get those guys to work together. And this is the approach he takes. It's very dialogical. So that's my recommendation for giving feedback to somebody is to make it less about, oh boy, I got to break this news that they're really underperforming. And if they don't get their ass, you know, sometimes that's called for, but oftentimes it's really like this person is not living up to their potential. And I think if I can just find that one magical thing that really got them to join this tribe and put that in front of them then they will embrace you know a new way of looking at the things that they're required to do
1: so a person asked me years ago who my favorite music artist was and um, i said it's probably a tie between Bob Dylan and Neil young and i go back and forth between those still to this day and i know you've compared his songwriting and his uh kind of music ability that you believe he took music to the next level, and that was also a teaching moment for you in your life. Could you talk a little more about that story?
2: Sure. You know, one of the things about Bob Dylan is that he serves that higher kind of thing, right? And same thing with Neil Young. So, like, you find people are always like, oh, they're on that goddamn Neil Young and Bob Dylan, they're always like, they're never doing what they're told. You know, they're always giving us the wrong album. And what I love about those guys is that they're just very straightforward and they go, well, you know, I serve the music. You know, the music is what I'm doing. So I think the story that I was telling, I think I was talking to Seth Godin about this at some point. And we were talking about when Dylan decided to go electric in like 1968. And at that time, he was making an album called Blonde on Blonde, which was a complete departure from anything he had done before. He was a folk artist before. And Blonde and Blonde, you know, the big song in it is, oh boy, once upon a time, just so fine, through <laughs> the bums of dime then you prime. How does it feel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. How does it feel to be on your own? Okay. It's got this great, incredible organ part on it. And the story about the organ part is there's a guy named Al Cooper who was sort of a hanger on and he was kind of friends with the engineer in, in the room and he didn't really know Dylan. But he really loved Dylan and he loved what was going on. And he's like, I got to be a part of this, right? So Dylan's in there and he's banging on the piano and the other session musicians are doing it. And Al Cooper, for some reason, had the nerve to just sneak into the room and sit at the organ. And they started doing another take. And he wanted to be a part of it so much that he started playing the melody on the organ, like maybe a second after each line of the melody. And so the engineer stops the recording and he says to Dylan, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. That's Al. He's not an organ player. I don't know how he got in here. I'm so sorry. He's ruined this take. And Dylan's like, what are you talking about, man? That's a great part. He's going to stay on the song. And the beautiful part of that, what that taught me, and this is part of Dylan's genius, is that he allows for the emergence of novelty coming from the bottom, right? So that thing I was talking about, top-down and bottom-up, we've got to allow for emergent properties to come from a top-down structure. So the structure is the chords of the, the song, right? The song structure is you've got you know some lyrics, you've got a chorus, some lyrics, a chorus, and you're out. The structure of a song has been set since the beginning of music back you know tens of thousands of years ago. So that's kind of like the top-down structure of a song. So Dylan could be like, I am the god of my top-down structure and nobody is going to put anything in this song that is not mine. But no, that's not his approach. When he gets into this recording studio, he surrounds himself with other individual human beings who love music as much as he does. And then he'll start his thing and he'll go, Here's the melody, and let's just jam. And then he allows these emergent novel properties to come up. And that's why he's kind of frustrating when you see him in concert because he never plays the song the same way because he wants to go with the flow of what's happening in that moment. And it's the same thing with Neil Young. So that's, you know, the eminence from the top down has to conform and play with the emergence from the bottom up. And that's when. Innovation occurs and new thoughts and new ways of looking at the world. It's the beauty of art that emerges from that.
0: This has been an amazing interview. It's been a masterclass in life. As you were talking, I was like, yes, the universe made this happen. And I guess by universe, I mean Steve Pressfield hooked us up.
1: (laughs) Really appreciate you sitting down with us. Really appreciate you having this conversation. This was fantastic all around.
2: Oh, thank you guys. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Sean. And look forward to publishing the episode and just uh, hearing it for a second time. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off. And hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud There's dirt on my
2: hands Str-